This is our third episode. And we are Lena, Sana and Bianca. And we are very happy to have uh, a guest today uh, with us in Purple Coat, Mona Sloan. Hi, Mona. Hi. We are so happy, Mona Sloan, to have you here with us today. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us, Mona. Hi. Thank you for having me. Hi. Yeah, and uh, Mona, let me introduce you briefly. Um, and I have to confess that it's not easy to introduce you because you are in so many different projects. You have such a great, great output. And I'm super impressed each time I, I'm looking at the things you are doing. But I'll try to summarize a bit. So actually, you are a sociologist. That's the most important information. That's correct. That's, that's the, that is the biggest hat I wear. Yes. And uh, for, for me, coming from design, but uh, for all of us, for Lena, Sana, uh, and our podcast, um, the thing that you are very much into researching inequalities through technologies is important to us and you are for years have been working on questions of ethics and AI, design and policy, design and inequalities and um, my question would be where comes the motivation to address exactly this topic from? Well, thank you, Bianca, and thank you also to Lena and Zana um, for hosting me today. I'm thrilled to be here and thank you for that kickoff question, which I think is really a foundational one. So I might um, give you a, a longer answer to that. So I originally trained as a professional dancer and then decided to pursue um, graduate work in sociology at the London School of Economics. And when, it, you know, when the time came to write a master's thesis, um, and do so with a research focus, with an independent research project. Um, I got very, very drawn to space and bodies and ended up writing a thesis about spatial atmospheres and design in commercial spaces because I really felt that there was a lot of social theorizing actually going on on the side of the designers that profoundly affected, you know, how bodies move through space. And with that, I really landed on design as actually an extremely potent theoretical and practical frame for understanding what is going on in society and also what is going on in society when it comes to, you know, the interlocking systems of privilege and oppression, which is the definition we use today for the term intersectionality. And I ended up making that uh, centerpiece of a research program on public lighting and inequality that I co-founded and ran. And really then from there started to focus on how technologies are designs that can actually function as amplifiers 
for inequalities in ways that other designs don't. And very quickly, I then landed on artificial intelligence as a scaling technology for better, but also very much for worse. And that's where I am today. Uh, thanks so much. So maybe for our listeners, could you give uh, an example where you observed that AI um, has uh, an impact on inequalities? Yes, of course. There are many to choose from, and we may want to distinguish between different situations in which AI gets embedded into and gets deployed into. Uh, so there are, of course, low-stakes situations, for example, recommendation algorithms that tell you, that suggest to you maybe you want to buy the sneaker or maybe you want to buy um, that book. But when artificial intelligence systems, especially when they are predictive analytics, get deployed into high-stakes situations, for example, when they're used for automated fraud detection in public agencies, when they are used as facial recognition technology in law enforcement, when they are used in college admissions, when they are used in the financial sector to predict risk of an individual defaulting on their loan, then we're talking about high stakes situations. And what ends up happening is that the inequities that make up our society and that are intersectional and therefore affect different subpopulations and subgroups in different ways get baked into these technologies. These assumptions are mirrored in the training data that is used to create the model, the artificial intelligence model, which is a mathematical model, a statistical model, um, they are they get baked into that. They are made invisible in those models, but those models become infrastructural. And so we may end up with us in a situation whereby an automated uh, fraud detection system that monitors benefit distribution for poor people may flag um, certain purchasing behaviors that are um, culturally specific as fraudulent. For example, purchasing food in bulk. Um, and then mm. it could happen that automatically benefits are withdrawn. This is an actual case that happened in the United States. Um, we have a huge debate around facial recognition technology, which is not only linked to the fact that Uh, intersectionally oppressed populations, for example, women with darker skin, skin tones um, are affected by higher error rates by these systems. That is one problem, right? That's the, the technology not working, quote unquote, well. The other problem we have there is one around surveillance and surveillance of certain populations. So it expands into that discourse. But these are the kinds of examples we can use. Um, and it is always important to bear in mind that when we talk about AI, We are talking about a, de a design object that is all about scaling. It is all about doing one thing for as many people in situations as possible. And so that's where the, the danger lies. So do you find it difficult to write in a critical way um, about uh, the social effects of AI? I'm just wondering because there's there's so many hopes attached to digital tech and there's so, so much public and private money that goes into it. 
So um, how well is your criticism taken? Huh, that is a great question. I think that's actually two questions. One is about how how uh, comfortable or easy it is to to uh, articulate a critique. The other one is I think about how to make it how to make it stick and how to actually get to a point where where we can have a productive conversation about these issues that is you know not polarizing the discourse further. The first I can confidently say. Um, is not difficult for me. I am an avid <laughs> critic of things, I think is fair to say. <laughs> I, that, that stems from um, my frustration with superficial conversations and the kind of hijacking of certain terminologies. Ethics is one of them. We can talk about that if you want. So that's not difficult for me. What is difficult, I think, um, and what is actually sadly currently um, having a negative effect on the field of artificial intelligence innovation, but also on the field of critical technology studies, is a polarization, the kind of polarization that we are seeing in politics and society also is mirrored in the field. On the one side, we have critics, um, you know, who rightfully so sometimes call themselves Luddites, which is absolutely fair. And we need to ask the question, do we need certain technologies at all? On the other hand, we have technologists who are really working hard on innovation and who also do have an interest on social interest, of course, in socially just um, compliant technologies. And so we are at a point, unfortunately, where we can't really talk well to one another, mm. um, where we haven't found a space where we can connect the different languages we speak, which also has a lot to do with qualitative research and quantitative research with expertise pitted against expertise based on lived experience. So all kinds of hierarchical questions are actually impeding a productive discourse. And so my hope would actually be that in a way regulation comes to the rescue. We're seeing mm. a lot of regulatory discourse happening uh, on AI in the space of AI, the European Commission, is um, you know currently working hard on the new EOAI Act. We know that regulation is coming. We know that regulation will have a signaling effect to other territories, the United States, one of them. And so we will have to enter a more productive space where we can bring together critique um, with innovation. And that's what I'm actually excited about. Yeah, um You mentioned the United States and Europe, and uh, I should mention that you are in both uh, at home, actually. You are affiliated to the New York University, but also affiliated to the tu Tübingen AI Center in Germany. And I can really connect with uh, what you said, that the polarization of the discourses makes it almost impossible to... Um, to link them fruitfully to each other, because uh, I also yeah, and that's where I would like to to ask you about one project that uh, I find very impressive. You did uh, Terra Incognita, New York City, um, during the pandemic. So, what was this about? Yeah, thank you for that question. So, 
Terra Incognita New York City was a research project that was funded by a wonderful young organization called New Public, um, which is uh, co-directed by Eli Pariser, who wrote The Filter Bubble and is very, very um, active in the space of working against polarization, essentially, mm-hmm. on the, in the internet. And the other co-director is Talia Strout, who's a, a fantastic um, scholar at UT in Texas. And we got together when just, just before the pandemic um, and did a workshop on the question, what can we learn from public space design for bettering digital spaces that may not be public in a, in a legal definition, but may feel public. So how can we bring mm-hmm. the best of public space design to digital spaces? And um, then the pandemic hit. Um, and you may remember it hit New York very early and very, very hard. We were we at the, the, mm. the center of, of a terrible um, public health emergency here for quite a while, actually, which had severely affected the city um, and still does, of course. And we saw and I saw that there were all of these public spaces popping up online in certain ways. You know, the social practices that made up physical public space moved online, but in a different way, they still sort of were connected to the physical public spaces. And so um, I propose that we study this, that that was a unique opportunity to study this rapid emergence of digital public space in New York City. And I was fortunate in that I was able to recruit a fantastic digital ethnographer called Jordan Kramer onto the project um, as my research lead. And we um, recruited five um, ethnographers to run a rapid ethnography of the digital public space, spaces that emerged in New York City. And um, we found many, many things. It was, you know, just a just a snapshot of what New York looked and also felt like during that time. It was also very specific to a certain, you know, point in time. You may remember also that in 2020, we saw the murder of, uh, George Floyd, we saw um, large-scale mm-hmm. uh, protests motivated um, by the severe injustices that this murder and, and other murders um, surfaced yet again. Um, the, for the very first time in 75 years, New York City was under curfew for a week in the, in the midst of the summer. It was extremely hot. It was in August. We couldn't go out after eight. There were protests, the pandemic, police force everywhere. So that was, it was a very spe- special moment in time to see how communities got together and retained a sense of publicness. I'm happy to talk about examples and cases, but that was, that was kind of the, the overview of Terra Incognita. Mm. I remember... Um reading how you criticize a bit this citizen participation because it excludes everybody who is not a citizen. And it really was very eye-opening for me because I'm working since years with participatory design processes and uh, including citizens into policy uh, and city-making processes and then 
I just realized through actually through your uh, one of your texts about the, the project that um, unintentionally by the language we use, we already are excluded. We didn't exclude non-citizens out of the processes, but the language did. So um, yeah, just a remark. Thank you on that because I think it's very very important to question your own again and again your own language here and uh, the concepts you yeah you frame through language yeah thank you for saying that that was um i will also add that that is something that was not on the top of my mind and when i started writing that chapter and i dug into you know the data and the scholarship and my own thoughts that that so clearly surfaced and i was quite drawn to it once it popped up. So I learned <laughs> by writing as well. Um, Mona, I'd be very interested in knowing whether in your projects you also try to develop more constructive ideas about how to do things differently. Mm. Yes. Again, thank you for that question. I'm excited that we talk about that as well. <clears throat> I think the short answer is yes. Um, I am very wedded to creating more productive spaces and dialogues and actual projects and outcomes that are um, focused on translation, um, where we can actually talk to one another. And quite, you know, specifically, I work currently with people from other disciplines, um, very much with Julia Stojanovic, who is a professor of data science at New York University, who quote-unquote speaks an entirely different language. She is um, a mathematician ultimately. Um, and what we're trying to do is combine the different ways in which our disciplines produce knowledge and authority into something that is actually contributing outputs to creating more accountable, transparent, and fair artificial intelligence systems. Concretely, that means at the moment we're working on a new method that will create transparency around how automated ranking systems, as they're, for example, used in hiring or AI-assisted hiring uh, situations, um, that gives insight into how a model ranks in a way that is understandable to users. And users are, of course, both recruiters as well as um, job applicants. So that that is work in the making. And interestingly, that work is so much about um, identifying how we look at the problem and how we look at, at the world in a way. Um, and to really like be able to account for the full arc, right? So as a qualitative Researcher, I will say, well, we need to look at the assumptions. We need to look at the social practices and the professional practices of these recruiters, as well as job candidates. And and then, for example, her addition to to that conversation mm -hmm. as well. What's the kind of data that is collected? Um, what are how does the system actually func function? How does the system actually interpret these data points? Um, and it really gets into the weeds of math. There, So that is one project I'm working on. I'm also working, again, in the space of, of AI and hiring with uh, Ruman Chowdhury, who is uh, the lead for Responsible AI at Twitter, and Emmanuel Moss, who's an anthropologist, 
on developing holistic methods for AI audits that go beyond just a technical audit. A technical audit only looks at whether or not the system works as advertised. It does not allow you to look at questions such as, are we actually dealing with the scientifically sound and um, non-discriminatory scientific construct? For example, if we audit AI technologies that are based on concepts that are rooted in eugenics, such as how well, you know, neuroscience games or um, an analysis of microexpressions, then it does no, it is no good to just only look at whether or not there are the, the, the algorithm works at advertise because the advertising, the original idea already is discriminatory. So we need to look at all of that. We need to look at how these scientific constructs, these claims inform how the model is built. And we need to map that against um, how it actually performs. And so we can, by virtue of that, actually come up with a holistic AI methodology that allows us to um, say with confidence and evidence that this technology is hugely problematic on our fronts. The paper on that is coming out today, actually. <laughs> it's called Silicon Valley Love Triangle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice title. Wow. Um, Mona, thank you so much for telling us about your um, colleagues and who you're working with. It all sounds really exciting. And I'm wondering, do you, do you see the value of having mixed research teams, especially having more women and people from intersectional feminist background, um, people who are not, um, yeah, who are not white men uh, from that, those backgrounds? Do you see that? Do you see the value of having those teams um, in researching uh, about responsible AI, for example, and what the future could look like? And I'm asking this also in terms of, um, research in my own field, industrial relations, sociology of work, where um, recently there has been discussions about using critical race theory, intersectionality theory in studying workplaces. Um, and these two authors, um, Tapia and Lee, fantastic work they did. And they suggest having mixed research team employing more women, queer people, people of color, to actually research about subjects which affect them. Um, because there's this sort of experience of, of marginality with that. So, yeah, I wonder if you have thoughts on that. Thank you for that question. Uh, capital Y, yes, exclamation point. Um, absolutely. I think it is actually something um, we shouldn't even have to ask or justify anymore. Um, it should be absolutely baked into how we think about the production of knowledge, the production of expertise, um, and the you know production of innovation of, of how we live in the world, right? And so I think it is absolutely obvious that we can't possibly produce the knowledges that we need in order to actually get to a point where we can even start thinking about creating a more equitable society without uh, or with just a homogenous group of quote-unquote experts. Um, I think on the one hand, of course, you know, concepts such as intersectionality are extremely important, but that's, you know, and I'm being a little polemic here, just the theory, right? But that theory comes from a place of lived experience. And if we just, if we just use intersectionality as another piece of theory that then the same homogenous group gets to use and deploy 
to sustain their own position of power, then we're getting nowhere. So if we really want to walk the talk of intersectionality, we need to take seriously the main point, which is lived experience, as you said. Lived, and that actually leads to the question, you know, does this only matter for the production of scientific knowledge? No, of course not. We need lived experience front and center in all places in which power is negotiated and upheld. That's the workplace. That is the home. That is anywhere, really, where we make and remake society. And so I think it is, it is, it is absolutely crucial to do that and to create also environments where lived experience is taken seriously as expertise, where you don't have to have a PhD in, in the social sciences or in whatever to be taken seriously as an expert in your own life. This sounds wonderful. And I'm still wondering how you do about the obstacles, because mm. I imagine that there might be obstacles just in the academic world in which uh, you're mainly based. So how do you go about it? Um, can you give us a little bit more insight about that? Yeah, um, that is a, such an important question and also an important comment. Um, you know, it's so easy to articulate these desires and make these claims and, you know, tell people how it should be. Um, but of course, it, it is a whole other thing or an additional project to, to do it and to do it in environments which are not designed for diversity you know, which the Academy is very much. Yes. And the short answer <laughs> to that is the hustle. It is um, absolute, um, you have to just, or I find myself working long, hard hours to have many conversations to try and practice what I preach myself, um, which as a white woman with European heritage means also stepping back. And I don't mean to, you know, toot my own horn, but I think that's actually important to step back. I think we, people with from privileged backgrounds need to do that more. I think that need, should become an established practice. Um, having lots and lots of conversations with people from other backgrounds uh, in terms of, you know, other uh, coming from other disciplines, trying to do that translation work. And also very, very, very much, and that is my biggest point here, is mentor the next generation. Um, I think that work actually happens a lot in the classroom, mm. uh, at least in my experience. Um, so when I'm, you know, having conversations with my students, when I teach, when I have the privilege of um, getting, you know, getting with them to a point where we can ask bigger questions. Um, I think that's really where, quote unquote, the magic happens. And I try to, uh, you know, keep in touch with them, linking them to new allies in the workplace who can support them, who, uh, you know, allow for these kinds of conversations to happen. Um just work on the problem on all fronts, including policy. Um, and, and that's really a, my deep belief that that is necessarily necessary. And Bianca, that's also why there are so many projects 
in my bio. That's not, you know, that that is mm. why I think actually that's what it takes. And if you look at other folks who are doing incredibly important work, you know, mm. Timnit Gebru, Joy Bulamuni, Sophia Noble, Ruman Chowdhury, um, you know, if you look at what they do, they also do the work on all fronts because that's what it takes. It would be nice if there was more funding for that work, if that wa- work was more you know, rewarded also within the academy, which actually only or very often resorts to rewarding very narrow career a very narrow career focus and doesn't reward teaching and mentorship. So if I were to say there could be a structural change, it would be that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mona, I think um, you mentioned very important things here. And I'm also more and more convinced that uh, without regulation and policy, we cannot really make a change. So we are really fighting on very uh, different front ends, let's say. And with uh, so many projects, as you mentioned, that are not, how do you say it in English, harte Währung. Currency, they are not right? currency, not, uh, uh, especially in uh, traditional disciplines. So we are talking a lot in this podcast and between us about uh, exactly those problems and how to, let's say, bring also activism practices with research practices together. Uh, because we were talking about that we can't uh, anymore separate them. And I would say so this, this, this uh, also teaching and public teaching also that you are very much into and public uh, literacy is, uh, is something that I think brings both um, strengths together. Yeah, I would agree. And I would um, also very much agree that, that um, this kind of public scholarship is needed. Um, I fully subscribe to the idea of bringing activism and practices of activism into the academy and using academic spaces as a resource for nurturing that. But I will also say that it is important to retain a view for how long it takes for change to take hold, right? And for like really um, training for for the marathon, I just had that conversation with a friend uh, who is an important position in in this critical tech space as well. And you know, we're we're all training. We're marathoners. We have to be. And I think being there for the for the long haul and being a resource for for <laughs> long hauling, you know, as academics is important. Thanks so much also for your perspective as a dancer on the world. My mother's a dancer, so I think I know a little bit how what it feels like and how it is to have this perspective. And I think I would love to hear more about how this influences your work and your corporations. We probably don't have time, but um, I would love to do another episode in the future where you tell us a little bit more how it is to work radically interdisciplinary because this is something mm-hmm. I really learned today. It's impressive and mm-hmm. it's very inspiring. Thank you so much. Yeah, I would love to do that. And we could bring in the This Is Not A Drill fellows, Bianca, who yes. three of them I brought to Geisha's course. I um, missed that one because I yesterday. had, yeah, yeah, I missed that one yesterday. I had a, another thing, <laughs> very important, <laughs> but I won't go into that. Um, but 
but uh, I, I would also love to continue the conversation. And I think we now are getting to a point where the personal experience within academia and research, the interdisciplinary perspectives, and then also the fight for uh, not only our own rights, but the fight for uh, voices that are not represented or not heard, and that's why we also are doing this here, the conversation with you and uh, many other uh, wonderful people and persons um, from journalism, from activism, from um, academia, in order to, to, yeah, to make these voices also and these perspectives visible, to talk about them and to try to uh, make a change through these conversations. Thank you so much, Mona, for your time and looking forward to the next uh, conversation with you. Thank you so much for your very important work and for making this available as a resource for everybody to learn. It's a pleasure to have this conversation with all three of you and thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Mona. Bye.